Hello and welcome to the Data-Driven Security Podcast, Episode 4. My name is Jay Jacobs. Joining me is Bob Rudis. Bob, how are you? Jay, uh, how was your weekend, man? Great. Really good. Thanks for the small talk. Now let's move on and bring our guest on. Joining us is Kimberly Price. Kimberly, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Great. Great to have you on, too. Uh, so, Bob, why don't you uh, uh, take over and uh, introduce our guest or, or take it from here? All right. Um. So, uh, so Kimberly Price is on. Well, uh, welcome, Kimberly. Uh, Kim, we we got a chance to hang out with Kimberly. And I think we pointed this out on the last podcast uh, at Metricon uh, Nine a couple weeks ago. I think two Fridays ago. Uh, she was probably the hit of the entire show, and uh, we were thrilled when she said she'd actually be on this podcast with us, crazy guys. And my first question to Kimberly is, why don't you explain to the massive six hundred person strong audience of Data Driven Security Podcast what is your background? Okay, so my background is not computer engineering at all. Um, so my background comes out of social sciences. I'm a, a certified health education specialist. I have a degree in public health education, and I have a uh, degree in behavioral psychology. So from a academic perspective, I come into computer security from a very unusual route. Uh, I've been in computer security since 2003, though. So, and what do you do presently in, for InfoSec stuff? Oh, so I work in the BlackBerry Security Incident Response Team. I'm an incident manager, uh, sometimes referred to as an IM. And I work with security response managers, computer engineers, who are doing the technical investigation on cases, on vulnerabilities in our products. So BlackBerry Security Response Center is responsible for the security of our in-market products, things that are actually in customer hands and still in support. So, so it's like all the phones and tablets and things like that? And the um, BlackBerry uh, Enterprise Server, so okay. BES 10. Uh, currently, uh, there's some, some older BES versions that are still in support. So uh, I work with the security response engineers, technical writers, external security researchers, uh, executives within the company to make sure each potential issue is investigated. We fully understand the impact, uh, work with the development teams to get it fixed. So really that vulnerability from, from cradle to grave until we get to the point of either determining it doesn't affect our customers or we release a security advisory to inform customers of the need to update their, their software. Every incident manager has casework. We also have projects that are based on our subject matter expertise. And so I'm the subject matter I am for reporting and analysis. So I do some competitive intelligence work, uh, data analysis, KPIs for the team. I also am um, involved in our, eco strat so our, our ecosystem strategy and plans for things involving conferences or researcher outreach and things like that. Um, actually, that vulnerability thing sounds like it's it's a lot of work, and it actually sounded like it was a lot of work when because that was kind of the topic of your your Metricon talk, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you, if you want to go into a little bit more about what you were kind of talking about at Metricon. Sure. So at Metricon, I was talking about using publicly available vulnerability data to identify trends and reduce the unpredictability of response. You never know when a vulnerability is going to come in that you need to respond to, whether you're a product team or if you're in the enterprise and you're responsible for supporting the, the network. You know when Microsoft releases because they have to, Patch Tuesday, Adobe hits Patch Tuesday, a lot of the big vendors are aiming for that second Tuesday of each month. Unfortunately, there's a lot of software in use, whether it's in the enterprise or in a vendor's space, that isn't on that second Tuesday cycle. And you can't predict that. You don't know when libcurl is going to release a security fix. It just simply doesn't work that way. And so how can you predict that, and how can you um, plan for it so that you're not always fighting fires? And and when you're talking about prediction, you're you're more talking about um, 
just trying to make it less unpredictable, right? You're not going to say, oh, libcurl is going to come out a week from Friday, right? You're saying... Mm, <laughs> correct. No. <laughs> uh, so, for example, the public health uh, training I received involved a lot of program evaluation and biostatistics. And so I come from a background where I firmly believe you can't manage what you can't measure. So if you don't know how many vulnerabilities a library has had in the last 6 to 12 to 24 months, and you can't know what direction that's trending. You can't know, are they issuing more advisories, less advisories? Do those advisories have more or less vulnerabilities than they used to? Do I have enough resources on my team? Do I need process improvements? Do I need, do I need to invest in new tools to manage this load? Um, where do I use these libraries in my enterprise or in my products? And so for me, I, I come at it from this approach of we need to have the, the baseline data so that we know how to then go on and, and plan the business so that at the end of the year we're not like, wow, we were really busy. Instead it's like we were over or under our prediction for busyness by X percent. And, and so did we have the people we needed? Did we overshoot that? that mark on hiring. Um, it also helps us to understand that during the really busy times, you know, that there that this is expected. And so then when we have a little bit of a slack time, we can kind of uh, throttle back and realize, okay, there's another busy time inevitably around the corner and let's recharge our batteries and be prepared for when that hits. So you you talk though about um your your biostatistics background and your your public health and and all that is that where you picked up a lot of the the skills for data analysis or was there after like real world getting messy with data kind of thing that you learned more or? I don't know how real world it is to, when I was a grad student I taught biostatistics so that was a job technically um, once I got into um, once I got into the, the when I started working at Microsoft in 2001, thinking back, it was a very long time ago, the way I managed my productivity was around metrics and, and keeping track of what I'd accomplished in, in my job. And so then as I moved into the security engineering group in 2003, um, it was actually called the security business unit at that point. It, it was about a year after the trustworthy computing memo. And I was brought on and I founded the security out the security researcher outreach team, which is um, commonly now called the um, ecosystem strategy team or ecostrat at Microsoft and I came at it from a data-based approach because while a lot of engineers think that outreach is this very squishy subjective discipline where you decide if you like someone and you want to work with them that's not how I operate it's simply not the way I'm programmed I'm a feedback junkie every job I've ever had I've wanted feedback so that I could tweak performance and, and improve and so I approached this project that way as well so I designed uh, I, I took objective data in terms of researcher advisories what's their what's their advisory count what's the severity of those advisories um, or vulnerabilities as the case may be do they speak at conferences um, are they publishing papers and and I basically did some audience segmentation I didn't know what it was called at the time I just realized you can't you can't talk to everyone the same way because they all have different motivations and that primarily comes out of my psychology background where you have to meet somebody on their ground so that they can hear what you have to say to them. You can't expect them to come to you and have a meaningful conversation. And so I, I designed targeted programs around what a certain segment needed. So if they had really great technical skills, but they were only reporting five or six things to us a year, we wanted to keep them working with us, even if we weren't talking to them every single week. So what can we do for those people that would be different from maybe most of their cases are moderate severity, but they occasionally hit a really critical issue and we're talking to them like every three days. They need a different kind of, of process. And so Again, you take something that on the surface looks very squishy and you wrap some science around it so that you can control it and predict it and you have sort of policies and guidelines for how you're going to engage with people and use your resources effectively. And so it, it comes out of that. Everything I did in my time at Microsoft had some element of measurement in it, whether it was geographic distribution of vulnerability 
researchers and what technologies were hotter in different regions of the world or others. And again, just always wrapping data around the business problem to try to drive down operational costs as well as promote culture change both within the industry but also within Microsoft. It was a great experience and then um, you know I continue doing that today at BlackBerry which um, is a fantastic experience as well. I work with great people. You know I get to work on mobile security challenges instead of desktop challenges and uh, it's actually at BlackBerry that I got all the experience with open source software and third-party software. So to answer your question of like where did I start doing some of this, when it comes to the open source that was all in the last four years at BlackBerry. I had no exposure to to open source previously, you know, I, I had heard the whole, oh, well, it's more secure because everybody's looking at it. Not really. <laughs> that's, that's not really true because everybody's looking at it, but no one's actually paid to look at it. And when you look at the data, it has just as many vulnerabilities. And and you were working with like perfect data. I understand like there was no issues with the data. <laughs> Unlike a lot of other places where like we have to do data cleanup and stuff, you were just working with perfect, beautiful data, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, no, yes, and I, I have a unicorn. And <laughs> no, um, I cannot tell you the number of times that like I would crash my computer because I'm working with such large data sets trying to sanitize uh, data. And there's all sorts of problems in it. And it, some data sources are better than others for different things. It, it varies wildly, but without fail, regardless of the data source, you're always going to end up investing a significant amount of time on cleanup. I learned through trial and error where the messy data was and how to work around it and started building into reports the time it would take to clean it. I know there was one particular report I was asked for earlier this year, and it was like, um, you know, can you update these numbers? And I'm like, if I drop everything and spend the next... 24 hours on it yeah but like it, if I had all the data right now yes I could run that for you in a matter of about 20 or 30 minutes it's not the reporting that's the problem it's the cleaning and formatting of the data happy to chat with you about my data sources because that's actually really interesting to me yeah I mean absolutely yeah. like where, where where did you go for the the stuff for the vulnerability, you know, was the stuff coming into you? Did you go to kind of common sources on the internet that everyone goes to, or did you get custom feeds from folks, you know, et cetera? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was all evolutionary. When I did some initial data analysis in 2010, early 2010, in the BlackBerry Security Response Center, we knew that we were putting WebKit on the handheld and on our upcoming tablet, and we were going to have Flash on the tablet. And at that point, we you know, had a few people on the security response team, and I thought, you know, WebKit has a few vulnerabilities, I've heard. So I went to uh, the National Vulnerability Database and pulled all the WebKit vulnerabilities, and I pulled all of the Flash vulnerabilities, and I did some trend analysis, and I took it to my management team. It, I just said, hey, this is what we're adopting, historically speaking, and this is the trend it's going in, and we should be thinking about this. And we got more headcount, which was good because we needed it to manage that load. The next time we did this sort of analysis, uh, we needed more detail. We didn't just want to look at CVE counts. We wanted to look at number of advisories, which isn't really an issue with WebKit, but it is with Flash, and it is with a number of other libraries. And that was the other piece. We wanted to look at more than just two libraries. And uh, the National Vulnerability Database and the CVE database weren't granular enough. And so I tried using Secunia's advisories that are publicly available um, because they do a really good job of, of catching every CVE the challenge is sometimes there's duplication. So, for example, Debian releases an advisory to fix something in libcurl, and that CVE is listed in both the libcurl and the Debian advisory, and it starts to get a little messy. And so I found that using the Secunia data, I was still going to the vendor advisory to validate, you know, trust but, ver trust but verify. So I would still end up going to the vendor advisory, and I thought, I'm just going to go to the source. And so for all 10 libraries, I just started going to the vendor advisories one at a time and pulling out all the CVEs because, we, like I said, we wanted to look at how many vulnerabilities are there but also how many advisories are there because those are 
initiating a response event for us to have to kick off a sustainment effort and investigation. Prior to Metricon, I was doing some talk with uh, risk-based security, and I was talking with them about how we could use their vulnerability database to drive down our operational costs of case open and triage, because they have been building their own vulnerability database, which has even more information. So they're tracking the vulnerabilities by both CVE and OSVDB number. They're identifying when one CVE has multiple vulnerabilities bundled into it. They're identifying when one vulnerability has multiple CVE numbers assigned to it for some reason. So they're catching a lot of things. They're also tracking when things, uh, when a vulnerability is also in exploit DB or has a metasploit exploit available. Um, they're tracking who the original finder of the vulnerability was. So there's there's a tremendous amount of data available. They are not publicly available. However, for an organization that has the financial resources and the organizational maturity to use that much data, I think it's possibly the highest integrity vulnerability data source I've seen yet. So that's actually a data source, folks, if they wanted to contact risk-based security um, and, and find out pricing or things like that, that's probably a service they could find from there. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I. Yeah, I can't tell you. I don't even know the prices. Yeah, yet. I got you. No, We're I just. <laughs> well, no, and, and, and I, I, pretty... I only bring I bring that up because I totally understand how challenging it is when you're actually developing a product and you have to support an end user product. And you know, in that ecosystem, there are vulnerabilities you have to worry about patching that are not necessarily you know at a first problem of yours because it's not your code. But there's or, there's other there's other organizations like enterprises like the one I work for where we 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 have similar issues that you're talking about with you know we get the the overlap of the vulnerabilities or you'll get something where you don't know, you don't know really if there's multiple things associated with it in one direction or another and then the whole idea of you know what is the metasploit exploitability index if you if you will and I'm kind of just that's just the term I just made up but kind of the same what you were just talking about and all that thing all that stuff together is really good metadata that we just don't have readily available for any of the sources that you just described as well like Secuni like Secuni is one of our go-to resources too but that's just not there kind of feel your pain but just not 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 to the degree that, that you probably feel it. <laughs> there There's actually a couple things that you hit on that I think are really important where you're talking about in the in the enterprise space and you know, you're ending up with a little bit of duplication in the advisories you're reading and trying to figure out you know what exactly is what. From a vendor perspective, I find out about the vulnerability when the third party releases their advisory. You still can't do anything about it until I release my advisory so you can deploy that fix. But, for example, and I'm not picking on, on Debian, but it's just a useful example. If you're University of Calgary and you know you have Debian systems in your enterprise, if you're watching to see when libcurl releases a vulnerability and you saw that, okay, there's, there's three new vulnerabilities in libcurl, you can contact Debian and say, hey, as one of your customers, security matters to me and I want to know what the ETA is for a fix on this. Customer feedback absolutely matters. And if customers are telling vendors, hey, we care about security and we want to know when this fix is coming, they're going to hear that and that's going to make a difference to, to them. The other thing that that does is it lets you know, oh, I'm probably going to have a Debian advisory coming up pretty soon and um, you know, it's not quite such a surprise to you then when it does come out. So I think that it's, it's useful not just for the vendors um, to know what that vulnerability trend looks like, but it does also force you to know what third-party code is in your products and to start looking at that. You know, when, when an advisory comes out, what's it actually fixing? Is it fixing native code or is it fixing a third-party library? And also, if you're on the network side of things and you're looking at deploying new products in the enterprise, that's another thing you might want to look at. Okay, we're looking at three different products to deploy in the company, and I've been asked to make a recommendation to the CSO or the CIO based on the security posture of these what third-party libraries are those products using and what are the, the vulnerability debts in those in those libraries or, or the average vulnerability load that you would be taking on? Honestly, you could use it in mergers and acquisitions as well. Start asking those companies, what third-party code are you using? How have you managed sustainment before? And get an idea of, of what you're getting into. It doesn't mean you won't still take on a product in your enterprise or, or acquire a company, but you go into it with your eyes open and knowing what to expect. You know, you mentioned about asking about third-party libs. How many organizations actually know that? You know, like if, you know, Bob, actually for you, how many, do you, do you guys know in, in your enterprise how many third-party libraries are in all your code? 
So I can't I can't tell you what the number is because I, I don't know off the top of my head, but they started a they like the basically the we have like a, over a thousand developers producing like just millions of lines of wretched Java code. But it was but, a comment on Java, not on your developers. That, that yeah I, yes that's exactly <laughs> what that was, Kimberly. Thank you very much. They actually started to work. This was a few years ago, trying to centralize the use of both libraries that we use as well as libraries that we create for internal use as well too. So we have a much better handle on it than than we did probably like five or six years ago. Do we know and that's just for the stuff that we build there, right? So for the layered products that we use, can I tell you precisely what's in all of those things? No, and that's kind of frustrating. And because even though I kind of sort of know when some you know that you almost everybody uses libjpeg because why are you going to write the JPEG stuff like by handwriting? So anything that's displaying a graphic to something is going to be using that. Yeah, for that, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly what that is if they don't tell you that overtly. And then you're also kind of just sitting there waiting for patches from folks to come out when you know for a fact that some of the stuff is vulnerable. But I guess where I would follow that up with Kimberly, was it really easy for you guys to to know where you're using those third-party libraries, or did you have to do some kind of like magic incantations to figure some of that stuff out? Well, I rode the unicorn to the data repository, and <laughs> no, um, so honestly, your legal team could be your best friend here, because for compliance reasons, they should know where all that third-party code is, because they're responsible for the licensing. The challenge becomes if you have multiple development teams using the same library, and they know the licensing is good because the team down the hall is using that code. So they may not update the database to say, hey, we're using it too, because they know the licensing is good. And so that documentation may not be up to date. The versioning may not be up to date. And so um, that's where we started from, was having a legal compliance database. But through doing this data analysis, one of the things that we were able to do, I mentioned earlier, you know, both in terms of people resources, but also tools and processes, um, we improved all of those things. We uh, looked at code, uh, code scanning tools, and there's a number of them out there, Black Duck, Palomita, um, several others, where they'll scan your code database, uh, or I'm sorry, your code repositories, and they will tell you what libraries you're using, and some of them will go so far as to say, here are the libraries you're using, the version of that library, what component you're using it in, and here's all, you know, we've done a comparison of that library against the CVE database, so here's the vulnerabilities that are known today that are in that library you integrated X number of months ago. And so that can be really helpful from the product side of the house. From the network side of things, you do have network vulnerability scanners. I know Tenable makes one. There's a couple other companies that make them as well. You know, Tenable has a uh, passive vulnerability scanner as part of their security center, and it will let you know what boxes have what vulnerable versions of what software on it. Um, right down to the IP address, so you can go out and get it patched. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity for for code scanning to tell you where you have problems. So how long do these like so I guess how much of your job is this function that you've kind of been describing you know it is have you knocked it out so where this is kind of just it does it itself you don't have to worry about it you can just focus on all the incident project stuff you have to do. I'm sorry did you say this function or dysfunction? Oh that's um, so I'm supposed to be 60% casework and 40% projects, um, but as we did more and more reports, the executive leadership liked having data, and so there became more and more requests for reports. So what typically happens is um, I'll, I'll do the one-off reports where there's a request for, I need data on this and I'll go do that. Once we have a report that's being requested on a um, weekly, bi-weekly, or maybe even monthly schedule, we either um, automate it and put up a web dashboard if the tools team has time to, to do that. Um, I also have a couple uh, people on my team who I've trained to do the more standard, okay, once a week you you put this data into this chart and it's not defining a new analysis process, it's simply running the data. Um, we have a couple of those, but I would say at this point probably half my job is reporting, which is awesome. It's very cool stuff to do and I feel like it makes a huge, huge impact on the business, both for our in-market products, but it's also feeding back into SDL because we can communicate with the product management and uh, security teams around, hey, 
you know, you're looking at the next version of the library and I realize, you know, version 1.6 has some major API changes from 1.4 that we used in our last version. Here's why it's really important that we invest in the architecture to be able to upgrade to that. And so we can still feed a lot of this data back into the, the future product stream. Have any of these analyses and reports and metrics that you're creating resulted in dropping up library? And like, I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell me a specific library, but has have you actually stopped using library just because of the barrage of vulnerabilities that you had to you know deal with coming from it? No. Okay. No, we still have to. I mean, the library is in use for for a business reason, and so chances are, if we were to stop using the library, we would either have to code something ourselves or find a different third-party library that had some sort of significant advantage. Neither of those is really easy to do. I mean, if you're using a font rendering engine, that's because font rendering is hard. And if you've got somebody who has been doing font rendering for four years, and you're like, hey, I'm going to take that on, and we're just going to start from scratch, you're kind of reinventing the wheel. It doesn't always make sense to eliminate a library. You may be able to do things in terms of sandboxing better. Implementation can be modified to make it a little more secure. And if you're using the same library in multiple places, you know, maybe there's some areas to consolidate in so that there's less duplication of servicing. You know? So there are some ways that you can still control that without just saying, we're getting rid of it. But from what you're describing, um, rather than replacing, it sounds like the real benefit is from the the forecasting around the load of the advisories and how much effort it's going to be. You know, like this particular library has this track record, therefore let's plan this kind of resources for that. And I think that's really fantastic that you're able to to look at what's out there and say, this is what we're going to expect, right? You're sort of saying we're going to be here, and we're going to then you can see where you are compared to that and stuff like that. We can have an actual dialogue with the development team that isn't just, oh yeah, the security people are coming in with their doom and gloom and they're scaring us, you know, they're trying to scare us with all their security issues. I can come in and say, look, here's the trend, so let's talk about your sustainment plan. Like, yeah. you do have to, you have to budget for that. Like, when you read pretty much any book on SDL, it doesn't stop when you ship the product. And, and a lot of development teams and, and enterprises <laughs> Still need to think of that. So one one question that you know I, I am curious and I have a feeling it's going to be like the answer is going to be Excel as as one of the things, which is fine. It's actually kind of cool because we have lots of naysayers about Excel. But what you know what are your primary tools? Either you know and don't just limit it to the actual like you know crunching through the numbers, but you know from data data cleanup, data processing, and what you do for producing out of the charts, graphs, reports, tables, etc. Like what are your primary go-to tools? So you're right, Excel is a big one for me. I am not a database person. Um, I've I've done a few queries. Um, I can do a little bit of access, but um, typically I will get a data dump from somebody who lives and breathes databases and then I dump that into Excel and I go to town on it. And I'm starting to use uh, PowerPivot, but I can't really call it a go-to just yet because I'm still learning it. And I, I mentioned at Metricon, I can I can do pivot tables and you know people who it seems like magic if you don't know how to do a pivot table, but it's it's so useful. I build my charts in Excel. I sometimes use Multigo for visualizations because you can upload Excel spreadsheets into that. You can upload your data into Multigo. And so, for example, I can pull all the CVEs and then I can dump my case tracking tool and do a visualized diff to determine where do I have CVEs that don't have cases associated with them. Because that's a problem if we missed a vulnerability to investigate. And maybe it's just a matter of the case isn't documented. It may simply be a false positive. But it's that sort of data quality that um, Multigo can help us with um, that we've used that for. I also use a lot of a lot of PowerPoint, which for anybody who knew me like six years ago, they would be stunned by how much I use PowerPoint because I used to joke that PowerPoint gives me hives. Like I just, well, I hated PowerPoint, and uh, now I use it all the time. Um, it is by far the best tool for communicating uh, issues to executives. You know, I can write a 14-page white paper, but they would much rather have 14 slides 
to just kind of bullet through the issues, add some talking points into the into the speaker notes, and and that's much more consumable for them. And and that's actually something I've gotten out of Metricon for the last few years of attending. Even though a lot of the talks are about network security, which is not my space, it's super useful to see how people are visualizing data. And I always come back from those events with new new tricks in my tool belt, so to speak. Of oh, I saw this way that this thing was visualized. I'm going to rework this executive deck that's due in four days because I think I can do it in a much more compelling way. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about here's all this data. It's, it's communicating it in a compelling way where it's clear what the action is and what, what we need to do about it is. Um, so there's that. And then um, this weekend, actually, I was talking with a friend who is a community manager in the gaming industry. And she was talking about how she's using TagCloud to help her sort through some um, data that isn't objective. So, you know, you can do an objective survey of items or you can look at data, but then you want to start looking at freeform text fields, for example. And she's using TagCloud to help her pull out the either the things that are having a lot of hits or the things that make no sense. So, you know, we ran an event in February that was tied to Valentine's Day. Why do we have six mentions of Christmas? Let me go look at those because that's weird. Um, and so that's actually something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at. You know, maybe there's ways I could, I could utilize that. And then, as I mentioned, um, I'm kind of excited about the data um, and the vulnerability database from risk-based security and that, you know, I'm really hoping that I'll have continued opportunities to play around with that um, because some of the stuff in there, both about vulnerabilities as well as tracking the um, exploit modules through a variety of different avenues, um, ties back to some of the work that was presented at Metricon 9 by Michael Reutemann. And I actually need to follow up with him and um, see if he's already looking at this sort of thing because I'd much rather collaborate than reinvent the wheel. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there to start looking at not just vulnerability flow, but trying to prioritize vulnerabilities on more than just CVSS. Like, what are the commonalities in the stuff that's ex that's getting exploited beyond just a CVSS 10.0? The stuff that's sub 10.0 that's getting exploited, what commonalities, what common characteristics does that have, both either in terms of technical commonalities or timing? If a vulnerability has a shelf life of six months and it hasn't been exploited yet, is that relevant? Is it not relevant? And, and so it's very uh, proof of concepty and exploratory, but I think there's a lot of potential there that could be interesting. So let me, let me go back to something you said, though, and it was, it was subtle, but you, you talked about PowerPoint, and I think the point that you were making, Kimberly, is that you're actually doing that to show visualizations. Like you're not, the report itself isn't like, like you're not putting paragraphs in Power, PowerPoint. You're, you're probably doing more visualizations, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that was very subtle when you were talking about it. I think it's a very important point, though, to talk about uh, the, the visualization aspect of your data analysis and, and how effective that is, how, how that how effective that can be at communicating. I think anybody who has gotten a slide deck that is all wall of text and then has someone basically read the text to them and they've they've wanted to bang their head against the desk. Um, and so there's this there's this sort of art of PowerPoint where you're conveying data and you're doing it in a compelling way. And so I try not to have too many super wordy slides. Um, I try to have some charts and some actual actionable data. It, there's never a slide that's purely charts. There's always some sort of context around it. And um, another thing that I never, ever, ever thought I would do, and now I do frequently, is um, animations in my slide decks. Not, you know, screen beans dancing or anything, but um, I'll take advantage of animations to walk through something. Because if you splat everything up on the screen all at once, people stop listening and just start reading. And so if you animate it for a presentation, obviously, you know, it doesn't work if you're just emailing the deck to someone, but if you animate it for a presentation in front of your executives or in front of an external audience, you can have the slide develop as you're talking about an issue. And so, for example, one of my slides at Metricon was showing the vulnerability life cycle, and it just grew and grew and grew over time as we walk through different pieces. And I think that's a lot easier for people to consume 
um, because they understand the flow of the information that way. And that, that plays into something that you hear a lot about the, the data visualization circles, and that's really storytelling, right? That you kind of you create that narrative and you get the story and you build up your, your characters, if you will, and develop them and you know you, you allow that story to to really grab the audience, you know, grab grab the, the message that you're trying to say and stuff like that. So I think I think it's a really key point to make. So well, there's a lot of really great research that's been done, you know, post-tipping point by people identifying what causes change. You know, you can have all the data in the world, but you still sometimes can't motivate change. And so how do you take that data and make it visceral for the decision makers? And, and how do you make it so that you don't have to tell them what to do? You illustrate the data in a way where they know on their own what to do. And they're like, oh, well, we have to solve this. And, and you're not telling them solve it by doing X. You're saying, here's this problem, and you're illustrating in a way where you know you may be able to suggest a, here are some options. But chances are, if you've illustrated it well enough, your, your audience is going to start generating ideas of their own and, and start having a conversation about, okay, what do we do about this? Instead of saying, oh, okay, that was useful data. Moving on, no. Okay. Every day on the internet and in news groups and in you know mailing lists, there's a lot of data and a lot of not there's a lot of data and not as much analysis as I would love to see that helps people understand what to do with the data and what the data means. And I think sometimes, and I know this was true of me five six years ago in my career, I was afraid to tell people what to do with the data. Mm -hmm. uh, I would present the data. But then I was afraid to draw that storyline and, and afraid to give it context that, that seemed um, too authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm the data analyst and you're the executive and you, you're going to know what to do with this. And then I realized there, there's an in-between step that isn't telling them what to do with it, but telling them why it matters. And, and as the data analyst, what do you see in the numbers? Yeah, and that's something, Bob, you and I have talked about a lot about how you have the, the statistics and the data analysis, but that domain expertise is something critical to have in there. And that's where the, a lot of that context comes in and the, you know, where do you take it from here kind of a thing. That's that domain expertise. And so mm -hmm. as, as, we're, as we're talking about information security, it's important that the, a lot of the security practitioners may feel threatened or thinking that this data is going to come in and, you know, that people are going to try and replace my thinking with data or something like that. And it's just absolutely not the case, right? It's it's offsetting, it's supporting the, the expertise that is existing there. Yeah, and, well, and I, I think, well, go ahead, Kimberly. Go ahead. I was just going to say, every report I run, you could automate, and you would still need a data analyst to interpret it. Yeah. You still need that human intelligence to say, and here's what this data means, versus I can generate a bar chart every day. Right. But it needs context. It needs that storytelling. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think what 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 I found like I think what Kimberly might have done better than, than we've done maybe in the book or or in pre previous podcasts or even on the web, Jay, is the whole that domain expertise is is actually used to provide the the guidance, so not necessarily the final decision, but it's actually the expert guidance that someone else is going to use, you know, when you're actually doing that that external type 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 of analysis and reporting. To make that final decision, so like sort of like you know what what's in theory the way the whole the, the risk management stuff is supposed to happen, which is you know you build the scenarios, you come up with your I, I, you some 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 type of risk recommendation based upon something, but ultimately it's someone else's decision to make a you know, a risk decision based upon what, what you provided to them in the guidance. And I don't think we made that I don't think we've made that connection a lot because we tend to talk to the practitioner about looking at data, and analyzing the data and providing their view of that data. But that that next level up, where someone gets to make a real decision based upon it, is something I don't think we've touched upon before. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the interesting thing, you know, you mentioned Jay that sometimes the security practitioner can be a little nervous about all this data coming in and how it's going to affect their job. And I mentioned that I'm a feedback junkie. I see all the ways that it can help them do their job. Like their goal is to move the ball downfield when it comes to security. The field has two ends. Do they know which one they're running towards? Do they know if they've run five yards or if they've run ten yards? And is that the last five yards in the field or the first five yards in the field? And so all of this data is giving them context in terms of 
where they're going. You know, if you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going, how will you know when you get there? And, and how do you know when you've succeeded? And what variables do you tweak to optimize your performance without any measures in place? So, you know, frequently you can say, okay, we're going to, we're going to measure this thing and maybe it comes out better than we thought it should. You know, one of the conversations on the security metrics mailing list recently around, around industry best practices. Yes, it's helpful to have benchmarks, but if you're, if you're blowing away all the industry standards, now it's time for you to look at, okay, what more can I tweak to go over and above? Or why am I beating the industry standards and should I be telling other people about what's unique about my program so that they can too? And, and all of that comes back to metrics and measurement and data. So Bob, did you have a last question here you want to throw out? Well, I, I have actually two last questions, but one actually isn't for Kimberly. Okay. So, so, so Jay, what's it like being on a podcast with two superheroes? You know, it's humbling. It, it's absolutely humbling, Bob. Thank you for asking me that. Is it encouraging you maybe to think about having a superhero alter ego? Uh, you know, time will tell. I don't want to make any commitments at this point, but uh, let's just say, you know, it's it's hard to predict where 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 we're gonna head. Gotcha. So, so I, I think we, I neglected to mention that 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 Kimberly is actually Kim Possible on, on Twitter. Um, I, we we posted her handle a couple times for Metricon. We'll do it again for this. And and actually, Kimberly is a real life suit superheroine, uh, for, like for actual reels and stuff. So, Kimberly, you want you want to talk a little bit about the awesome stuff that you do? You know, not security related. That is just <laughs> that I found just like it was just incredible hearing what what you do outside of that. Well, I'm I'm not a superhero. I'm just a kid from Rochester. Um, <laughs> so um, I don't do anything special that anybody else can't do. I, um, you know, obviously professionally, I'm really committed to improving the state of security. I would like to spend less time helping my family clean malware off their computers, um, which is kind of challenging because they live a few states away and it's all done over remote assistance and it's just not pretty. Um, but the really important stuff I do, like if I were to think about Kim Possible's mission, um, is m making a difference in the world around me, whether that's for my kids or just in my community. Uh, there's a there's a concept that I've lived by and only recently heard about an organization doing it um, called One Spark. The One Spark Foundation is actually in the Midwest of the United States, and it's a nonprofit organization that uh, believes that or one spark can light a fire. In this premise, fire is not bad. So you do something good for somebody, and that's going to perpetuate. Kind of like the concept of paying it forward in the Starbucks drive through line. Except instead of buying somebody a latte, you're having a conversation with somebody who maybe works in a service industry as a waitress, or is the cashier at the grocery store and you're seeing beyond just their transactional function in your life but you're treating them like a human being and you're listening and maybe it comes down to donating money maybe it comes down to time um, I do some very possibly odd things I obsessively collect all of the hotel toiletries when I travel and I'll, I'll come home with my suitcase full up every day I will take the shampoo and the body gel and everything out of the bathroom and put it in my suitcase and then housekeeping will bring me more and I will put it all in my suitcase and when I come home um, here in Seattle there is a uh, tent city that's filled with homeless people who are trying to get back on their feet and I'm thinking getting back on your feet and getting a job is a heck of a lot easier when you can shower and I've paid for the toiletries in my hotel bill so why don't I give them to them? It takes me next to no effort, next to no time, but it's a simple thing I can do. Um, you know, I you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be donating large grants to the American Heart Association. Um, you can go out on GoFundMe or Indiegogo and find, you know, a kid who's been diagnosed with third stage lymphoma. And you know what? You're not gonna. This is this was my personal philosophy when I found his page, and um, you know I I did my data checking. I validated that it wasn't a scam. Um, it legitimately is this little boy, this nine-year-old, uh, Aiden Love, 
in San Antonio who has stage 3 lymphoma and his mother's a single mom in the Air Force. She's had to take off work to focus, rightly so, on her son. I can't pay for his chemo. I can't pay for his radiation. I can't pay a month of their rent. But I can send them 20 bucks. And if everybody sent them 5 bucks, a dollar, that all adds up. And so I think that's really what I try to do is make the world a better place. And, you know, I'm not telling you about this and I don't, you know, post on Twitter about it, you know, a whole lot or Facebook about it to, to earn a sainthood or have people think, oh, she's so good. I do it to inspire people. And I surround myself with people who inspire me. I have a, I have a friend in Tucson who is an unbelievable advocate for greyhounds, and she helps the homeless community there in, in Tucson. I know a woman in Florida who runs a cat rescue. I know another woman who's heavily involved in a um, advocacy and support group for young girls who've been sexually trafficked. Um, there are normal everyday people around you that are making a huge difference in the world without spending vast amounts of money or hours and hours of every day on it. And so I just, I would just ask uh, your, your listeners to think about how can they make that difference. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. Thank you for sharing. That. I'm feeling a little weirdly preachy about that, and I'm sorry, no. but it's it's no, something it's I'm awesome. really passionate about. No, like it's, I it's, frequently will be like, hashtag make a difference, because... It's not hard. The, the exchange rate for kindness is awesome. Like, if I if I take ten dollars and so this actually happened this weekend. I'm filling my gas tank, and a guy comes up to me and he's holding a two and a half gallon gas can, and he's showing a lot of humility. Like he's standing pretty far back and he says, "Excuse me, ma'am." And I hate being called ma'am, but I let it go. Excuse me, ma'am. Um, I'm sorry to bother you. My my car ran out of gas. Could I? Could, would you mind maybe just a half gallon? I said no, no problem. Put it on. And he puts the can down. And he steps away. He's not encroaching on my space. He's he's just needing a little help. And he's not homeless, but he's clearly not able to put two and a half gallons worth of gas in his car. And so I filled the can. That's what two lattes for me. Yeah. But the impact it made on him is so much bigger than that, and that's awesome. So the exchange rate is definitely in your favor to go do good. Go do good acts. It'll make you feel better. The exchange rate for kindness. That's that's yes. that's just, that's incredible, actually. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's easy, and the more you do it, the easier it is to see opportunities, and so it just starts feeding on itself. So. Yeah, and I think maybe something for for some of the listeners. I know that there's a lot of um, open data movements right now. There's a huge wave of open data, and I know at least in my local community, there's uh, a whole lot of people really wanting to do good with data. And so there's a, a lot of movements around. Uh, let's get the the um, you know have the the government start to open up their data, and let's start doing some analysis and helping out the the local governments, helping them with their data and things like that. And they're actually extremely receptive to it if some of the some of the politicians are not but there are certainly some politicians that are receptive to it um, and that's another good thing I found just there's a lot of active people and for people starting on data analysis it's a great way to go get data and start yeah, working yeah where I was gonna go with that Jay is you know for folks that may not be as comfortable reaching out to other human beings I mean for, for a lot a lot, of, a lot of folks that work with data are used to staring at data and code and it's it, that's their comfort zone and a, a gateway drug into actually having more direct impact is there's a number of organizations like you were speaking of Jay but that actually will put you directly into the stream of working with nonprofits who actually need this data analysis to be able to bring you know, in, you know make their programs better to show folks you know that if you give us this it's going to help us more so you can actually use your data skills directly with these groups you know some of the ones like even Kimberly was talking about to actually improve how they do things and that's just that's a great gateway step into actually doing more more direct stuff with with, with organizations as well too so I think we'll get a couple of links up to those ones um, when we put the podcast notes out. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys could could basically set up hackers for charity, but have it be data analysts. Yeah. And you know. 
some of the stuff some of the stuff they're doing for nonprofit organizations could certainly be duplicated in this field of data analysis. Because well, if you think about it, a nonprofit they need to use their resources more effectively than anybody. Yeah, yeah. and I, it comes to mind. Um, who is it? Jake Jake Porway, and his data kind. Yeah, the day, actually it was Datacon that I was thinking of. I just it wasn't hitting the top okay. of my head. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then that's what they're doing, Kimberly. They're doing the uh, hackers for charity acceptance. Um, more about data hacking and stuff like that. They're trying to connect people who need the analysis with those who are willing to do the analysis, and it's all nonprofit and stuff like that. So. That's very, awesome. Very cool effort. I think it's based out of New York, if I remember. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll get links up to both the ones that Kimberly mentioned and also a couple of those as well. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm I'm out of questions. Is that mean, Kimberly? Do you, do you have anything you want to embarrass us or ask us at all? No, no. I had a great time at Metricon, and uh, you know, it's as always, it's a really great event for me to develop my data analysis skills. So, you know, for folks who haven't been out, I would just say, you know, see if you can't make it next year because it's always it's always really good content. So. All right. Great. Great. Well, we, we can't thank you enough for joining us. This has been a, a really great conversation. I'm really glad that you're able to join us uh, and do this podcast with us. Well, it was a lot of fun. Good. So maybe maybe I'll uh, come back in a couple of months and tell you what I've been analyzing since now. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I, actually, I'd like to have her back in, in a couple months just to school some of the Excel haters um, <laughs> on, on, on the awesomeness of actually doing real, real productive stuff that changes things in Excel. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's super functional. So yeah. does what I need it to do. Cool. Yeah. Good. All right. All right. And with that, I think we'll sign off. Thank you Bye. all for watching. Thanks, Kimberly. Until next time. Thanks. Yeah. See ya.